You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by reproductive endocrinologist Kate Wilsterman from the Department of Integrative Biology here at Berkeley. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Tesla. <laughs> so, I, of course, I have to ask reproductive endocrinology. That is, okay, the reproductive part, I could probably guess, but uh, what is endocrinology? So endocrinology is the study of endocrine systems, which are organs or systems that secrete hormones into the body, and those hormones control a lot of how our body works. And so the endocrine system that's relevant to reproduction would be the hypothalamo-pituitary-gonadal axis. So it basically takes the brain and communicates that information to the gonads, and that's the system that I study. Okay. And gonads, you know, middle school language, we should know what that is. Uh, I'm actually the GSI, the Graduate Student Instructor of Human Reproduction right now. So I feel I'm in a good place because I do we do go over the endocrine system and how it's related to these things. So um, luckily, I'll be able to ask a few questions. But first, is this something that's specific to mammals or humans? Or does everyone have an endocrine system? Absolutely. Um, actually, it's not even specific to animals. So plants, you can talk about also having an endocrine system. Anything that produces hormones is going to have an endocrine system because they have hormones that are traveling from one place to another and creating some sort of physiological signal. So a hormone I might know off the top of my head is something like testosterone or uh, estrogen. Uh, but are there other hormones people might be familiar with? Absolutely. So there's a lot of endocrine disorders that people have heard of. So things that are related to your thyroid gland. A lot of people have heard of uh, thyroid hormone. But there are also some basic things that we don't think of classically as hormones, but are hormones like vitamin D is also considered a hormone. Um, so almost everything that you can measure in your blood can in some context be called a hormone. So then I guess I should go back one more step and say, what is a hormone then? <laughs> Traditionally, it's been defined as something that your body makes uh, and then signals to some other organ. But depending on how you define it, it can include things that your body doesn't make. And so you can get through your diet. Can al Those things can also act as hormones. Okay, so this is uh, taking me back to human repro again, right? Because we talk a lot about uh, exogenous hormones, so things you eat through your diet uh, and Carlson, who is the instructor of the class, likes to talk about soy, for example, having a lot of hormones that you can ingest. So diet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of environmental hormones that we think of, too. So I think BPA was a big one a long time ago, and that actually acts similar to an estrogen. So there are lots of things in your environment that even if they're not classic hormones that you produce in your body, they can still act as a hormone. So I guess most people, when they hear you know, when they hear things about the endocrine system, for example, they might think of medicine. But do you have a background in medicine? Or I mean, this is not you're not in medical school, right? Absolutely not. No, I'm really interested in hormones, because I like to understand how the environment influences the way an organism functions. And these hormonal systems, like I just said, are susceptible to things in your environment, like BPA. And so by understanding endocrine systems, we're actually looking at how an, an organism interacts with its environment and how the environment can sort of feed it and affect your behavior as well as your physiology. And this probably also changes through the organism's life too, right? Because we can think about puberty, for example, and lots of hormones. So do you specifically pick adults or are you looking at young individuals? So my research right now is focused on pregnancy. 
um, which is pretty specific. But of course, you can study hormone systems in all these different contexts. And that's sort of why hormone systems are really interesting, because they're very dynamic. Uh, so if you study the reproductive axis in uh, a human before they've hit puberty, it looks very different and functions very differently uh, than the, that same axis in an adult. Okay, pregnancy. And is there some way in particular that you got interested in this aspect of the endocrine system? Absolutely. So during my qualifying exam, which is part of what we do early in graduate school, and it's sort of a general knowledge exam, I had Tom Carlson on my committee, who's a doctor actually that works in the department. And we talked a lot about stress and pregnancy. And I think this is something that a lot of people are familiar with. So we think about people who uh, experience a lot of psychological stress. And I think we can we see that those people tend to have a harder time getting pregnant uh, anecdotally. But if you actually look in the scientific literature and say, what evidence do we have that this happens in humans? There's not good evidence that stress actually impacts pregnancy. This is really surprising because if you look at almost any other organism that people have studied in free living systems, so any you know birds outside or mice outside living in their normal environment, we can measure that stress affects pregnancy. So this was sort of an interesting conundrum that I became interested in. If I then link that to my research, I wanted to understand why we might expect stress to affect pregnancy. What are the mechanisms that link stress to successful pregnancy. So what are the changes in hormone production that drive that? And we know from rodent systems that the hormone progesterone, which is also a sex steroid, just like estrogen or testosterone, is really important for pregnancy maintenance. And in rodents, progesterone is lower when animals are stressed, but we don't know why that happens. So that's the part that I was really interested in trying to understand. Okay. So I got a couple of thoughts in my mind. One is, uh, so progesterone people might have heard of also because this these are the things that are used in human birth control for females right um, okay so it's all related like that uh, one question a student came up to me the other day and asked me this question now I can defer it to you he said what is stress what counts as stress in this system that's a great question and if you ask a bunch of endocrinologists or even a bunch of physiologists you'll get a bunch of different answers so it means different things to different people. Really generally, we can talk about stress as a perturbation to homo homeostasis. What that means is basically our bodies are regulated to stay at some sort of constant state. So you think about body temperature. It's supposed to stay somewhere around 98.6 degrees. And your body is constantly fighting environmental effects that drive that temperature up or down, and your body's trying to stay at one point. So anything that challenges the ability of your body to keep steady state is going to be considered a stress in some context. Now, the way I talk about stress is really specific to psychological stress. Um, so basically, things that an animal perceives as stressful or uh, make you feel scared, make you feel your heart rate go up. And so that that's much more limited within what you could define as stress. So this might be something like a predator, you know, coming up and surprising the animal, and that would create stress. Absolutely. The way that your body responds to that stress, though, so an animal that experiences a predator, if you look at that animal physiologically, so what's happening with their hormones, what's happening with their heart rate, that can look very similar to the response that you might have giving a speech. So the, those stressors, even though they're very different from an external perspective, internally they look very similar. Yeah, and that's a great point because one of the things the student brought up actually was he said, you know, we, we're undergrads and we say, oh, uh, we're so stressed, right? I'm so stressed about this exam. He said, how can that possibly be stress when you think about 
other people in other parts of the world. And I was like, well, you know, it's all relative, right? Maybe the hormone response that you actually feel going to this exam is similar to a hormone response of someone who's like fighting for their life against a predator. I don't know, but uh, it is all relative, right? So we can still feel stress even though we're living in a developed country. And this gets back to that idea I brought up earlier about these hormone systems being dynamic. So you might have the same response, but the time period over which that response occurs. So stress ends up manifesting itself very differently. So for you and me, maybe we experience a very short-lived stressor. So we get an increase in this one hormone uh, cortisol, which we call a stress hormone, and it causes very short-term effects versus somebody who's living in an uh, constantly stressful environment may still get that increase in cortisol, but their system responds very differently because they've experienced this many times over. Okay. Okay. So can you walk us through your path to graduate school a little bit? What, as an undergraduate, what sort of projects did you, did you get involved in that got you interested in the endocrine system, for example? I had a lot of different experiences as an undergraduate that led me to where I am today. And so they started... Uh, in a lab that was looking at prairie voles and sex differences in addiction. And what we were really interested in was understanding estrogen, which is a hormone, and how that drives addiction behavior. I really enjoyed the research. I thought it was interesting, but I felt that we were taking animals sort of out of an environmental context. And that environmental context seemed very important to me because that's what an animal has evolved to behave or act in. So I did a 180, and I did ecology research for a semester in South Africa, which was pretty hands-off, a lot of observations, sort of watching animals interact with their normal environment. And I really enjoyed that perspective, but I realized that I was coming back to the same questions. How does an animal actually respond to its environment? What's happening inside to allow that animal to make the decision to move from point A to point B, to reproduce at a certain time of year? And so I really was still interested in the mechanisms or the hormones driving behavior and physiology that allow an animal to interact with and persist in a complex environment. So following that experience, I got involved in research experiences for undergraduates, which is a summer program funded by the National Science Foundation. And through that program, I traveled to Alaska and I worked in a free living system of Arctic ground squirrels. And these animals are really amazing. They live in uh, north of the Arctic Circle and they spend eight plus months hibernating a year. So they have a very short period of time to reproduce as well as gain all the fat they need to survive that long period of hibernation. So there's a lot of really interesting questions you can ask in that system about how these animals cope with a challenging environment and how they respond to bad weather or changes across the year in the environment that they're trying to survive in. From that experience, I really found that that was the niche I wanted to be in, was trying to marry field research and understanding an animal in its environment to the physiology that underlies that, which is eventually what led me to integrative biology and Berkeley. And so I'll ask this question on behalf of students everywhere. Why did you decide to come to a PhD program instead of medical school? It's a question that my mother would have definitely asked you. I've gotten asked that question a lot of times, and it was honestly never a, que never a question that I had for myself. I always knew I was interested in research. As interesting as humans are, we do almost nothing the best. So if you want to look at a system and understand the best adaptation of that system to a certain environment, humans are almost always 
the worst model for that. So understanding these sort of extreme organisms like an Arctic ground squirrel tell us a lot about where our physiology fails. And that's really what I was interested in, understanding how does an animal do what it does? And then we can still take that information and apply it to humans to say, where are we failing? But that basic research is really important for contextualizing what our bodies do. So if you're just tuning in now, you're listening to The Graduates here on CalEx 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla. Today I'm joined by reproductive endocrinologist Kate Wilsterman from the Department of Integrative Biology. She's been talking about uh, the endocrine system and hormones and their effects on pregnancy and also how she's done work with prairie voles and Arctic squirrels and work in South Africa and uh, decided that a Ph.D. program here at Berkeley was the place that she wanted to be. So uh, what what were some of the things that drew you to Berkeley in particular? The Integrative Biology Department at Berkeley is a really amazing place if you want to think about how an organism interacts with its environment. The expertise I've been developing at Berkeley is really focused on hormone systems and how the brain interacts with all these other sort of organ systems in the body. But of course, I I said early in the program, I'm really interested in understanding how that behaves in a context. And the other graduate students at this university, as well as the professors, are experts on animals in their natural environment, what they're doing, why they're doing it, uh, and how they relate to each other. So I not only get to focus on the expertise of the physiology, but I get to do that within an environment where I can talk to people and really also engage in the contextual part of what I do. And you mentioned that humans aren't necessarily the best model. So what system are you working on now in your PhD? So I'm working on a couple. Actually, one of them is the mouse, uh, the classic lab mouse, which is also not a good model for certain things. And I think that's something that this department has helped me to learn is You know, you can work in a a model that's not perfect, but you need to recognize what those shortcomings of that model are. So the lab mouse is really great because we have a lot of really good tools for asking questions. Uh, We can manipulate genetics. We can easily do other manipulations to look at hormone systems. And we also know a lot about their physiology. So I can manipulate things and know what's going on in a mouse versus it's much more challenging to do that in an Arctic ground squirrel, for example, which we don't understand their physiology as well. So it's a really good starting point for generating ideas or hypotheses about how a system works. And then we can take that and translate that into a more relevant system like an Arctic ground squirrel or really any other rodent system or ask questions in the human to compare those two models. So if... I'm going to be a devil's advocate here. If we're talking about lab mice, isn't that the definition of taking them out of their natural environment? So I would argue that lab mice have been in labs long enough that the lab is their natural environment. But they still, you can't take a lab mouse and put it in a free-living system and expect that to be more similar to an animal that's sort of evolved in that system. So it's a good starting point for physiology, but it's in a lab environment, which is not necessarily relevant to what most other animals experience. So lab mice are actually so distinct from other mice. You're not just calling them lab mice because they're in a lab, but because it's a specific strain of mice? Absolutely. So we have lots of specific strains. One of them is this C57 strain, which is what I work with. And these are extremely inbred, and they've been used for many, many years in science. These animals haven't seen the outside of a lab for, I would say, 50 plus years. Dang. Okay, so but the, so what you're saying is that they're used to this environment. This is the environment they know and that their genetics are now, you know, almost adapted for, right? And a really good example of that actually is that mice in the wild will only breed or they're more likely to breed during a certain period of year. And that would be during the summer. 
And that's controlled by photo period or the length of the day, which affects this hormone melatonin, which you've probably heard of because it uh, is associated with sleep as well as jet lag. And these mice that have been in the lab for a really long time have actually lost the ability to respond to melatonin in terms of reproduction. So they reproduce regardless of what light uh, photo period you put them on. They don't care about that anymore. Okay, so they have changed. Okay, great. So working with lab mice, I've talked to people in the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology that also have large colonies of mice. Is your colony completely separate? You guys have your own system going on? Absolutely. Uh, There are these huge organizations that do a lot of our mouse breeding programs for us. And that way you can order mice from these systems that you know that these mice are going to be similar to a lab that's working somewhere else. So we order mice from this company um, work with them in our research, and we know that what we're doing can be similar to a, uh, somebody at a different university. Because it, it's important science to be able to reproduce results, right? And what other types of equipment do you use? You must use all sorts of fancy, you know, machines or things that calibrate, stuff like that. I don't use any of that stuff, so please tell me. <laughs> so we look at hormone systems at a couple different levels, and one of those would be at RNA, which is basically the first thing that you get from DNA before you actually get a protein, which is going to be the actual hormone. And so to measure RNA, we use a technique called quantitative PCR. We homogenize a tissue, and we can actually quantify the amount of this hormone that's being made in a cell or in a tissue. Now, you also want to know how much of that RNA actually ends up in the system because RNA can be degraded. It might not actually get turned into the final hormone. And to do that, we use a technique called ELISA, which allows us to measure the amount of hormone in blood or in a tissue. And do you have specific tissues that you're interested in because it's related to pregnancy? So I'm mostly interested in the ovary. We know that the ovary produces a lot of these hormones like progesterone that are really important for early pregnancy maintenance. So I've focused primarily on the ovary so far, but we also know that the uterus is actually an important endocrine organ during early pregnancy. And then you have the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which are both associated with the brain, and those are really important for controlling what happens downstream. Man, I don't know if you've talked to Katya much, but she's in our department. I just had her on the program, and she is looking at the testes. So you're looking at the ovaries, she's looking at the testes. You guys could get together, you know, have a late-night conversation, might work out. Absolutely. The the (laughs) The testes and the ovaries are very interesting because they're both gonads and they both sort of sit below the pituitary and the hypothalamus. So theoretically, they're doing similar things, but the structure within those organs is so different uh, that asking a question in the ovary and asking a question in the testes might lead you to very different answers. So what is like if, you know, if everything worked out in the experiment and you were able to answer the question that you really had, what would you find out? We would understand how the brain communicates with the ovary and how that affects pregnancy outcome, but we would also understand the feedback effect. So usually when you learn about these systems, you start in the brain and you look at the ovary as this output of what the brain told it to do. We know that that's not the case, but we don't really ask those questions a lot. So really what I'd like to get at is understanding how that feedback loop happens. How does the ovary also communicate with the brain and affect sort of the steady state of an organism across something like pregnancy, which is very dynamic? And would you expect that this might change between the first pregnancy and a second pregnancy? Or do you think it's the system might be the same regardless Ab- of which number? Yeah, Absolutely. We know that after your first pregnancy, your endocrine systems are 
regulated differently. There are cells in your brain that you didn't have before you became pregnant. You have become much better at behaviors that are important for pregnancy, like parenting. And for those reasons, we would definitely expect the physiology to change. Right now, I'm focusing on your first pregnancy and what just happens between the first trimester and the second trimester. But asking questions across pregnancies is absolutely also interesting. So can you walk us through how this type of research might be useful for understanding human health and human pregnancy? So like I said earlier, humans are hard to study and they're not great systems all the time. And one of the reasons they're hard to study is because we can't just measure everything. You can't bring a human into a lab and study them for a week at a time. So to ask really useful questions in a human, you need to have an idea of how that system already works. And not only how that system works, but how it responds to the environment over time. So hopefully with the research that I'm doing now, we generate ideas about how this system responds to stress that gives us markers to look at in a human that might give us more information. Without that background, it's very hard to know where to look. And do you have any advice for people who might be listening who are wondering how stress might impact their pregnancy or the pregnancy of someone that they know? Based on what people are saying now, you can't worry about it too much because we don't understand everything that's going on behind this. In addition, I would say there are some striking differences between what happens during reproduction in a mouse and what happens during reproduction in a human that suggest that it, the way stress is affecting reproduction in a mouse system might not translate to what ha what's happening in a human. So it's something that you can't worry about too much, in part because we just don't know enough right now to do anything about it. And because worrying is like the first step to stress. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, so just, yeah, not worrying, keeping the stress down. Okay. I think you're also in a really great position to maybe give advice to students who are asking Maybe you didn't ask this question, but who are asking themselves the question, am I more interested in medical school or am I interested in research? Can research be applied to humans or at what level do I want to ask these questions? So do you have any advice for students who are pondering that uh, decision? I think the most important thing to do is to gather a diversity of experiences. So get involved in research and not, don't just do clinical research. Explore other kinds of research. Most universities have a lot of different labs. Even if you can't participate in every lab, walk through it. Ask the grad students what they're doing and what they're interested in. And on that same front, do shadowing at a hospital. The only way to figure out what you're really interested in is to experience it, I think, and talk to people about what their everyday life is. That, that is excellent advice. Uh, what about for the general public who's interested in learning more about the endocrine system or learning more about, you know, stress and reproduction? What sort of resources can you advise for them? I think the first person to ask is actually just your general health provider. Doctors know a lot about endocrine systems, specifically in humans. Um, and there are, all, of course, doctors that are endocrinologists. And if you're just interested in the topic, those are the people to start with. Uh, okay. Yeah. Very practical. So do you have any uh, results from your research that you want to share? Or are we still ongoing top secret? Where are you at with that? Definitely. So the really interesting finding, and this gets back at your question earlier about, you know, should we worry about stress during pregnancy, is that if you have a mouse that's experienced psychological stress, we see that there's their stress hormone levels are elevated during early pregnancy. And this is associated with changes to the rest of the reproductive axis. 
But if you look later in pregnancy, even though these animals still have elevated levels of stress hormones, so they still look stressed from one measure, the rest of the system seems to have returned to normal. And they look like an animal that's never experienced stress. Uh, so this is really exciting because it suggests that even though animals are sensitive during this early window, eventually their system is able to override those effects. Okay, so that means that the stress doesn't have to last forever then. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. Like early stress doesn't have to impact later pregnancy. Absolutely. Okay, that's good. It's always nice to know that when we do something, it isn't necessarily going to have like lifelong effects on us, right? You can't worry about it too much. It all comes back to this idea of dynamic systems. These, these systems are designed to adapt to changes in your environment. And that's why, uh, you know, having a Friday night isn't so bad as long as, <laughs> as you still have a Monday morning, right? Exactly. Uh, great. Uh, well, I definitely want to give you a chance to get on the soapbox, so to speak, or if there any, if there's anything we haven't touched on in terms of the endocrine system, now's a great time. I'd like to come back to the idea I brought up earlier, which is that understanding the basic functions in these systems is extremely important for generating ideas about how to look at things in humans, as well as any other system. So there's a surprising amount of information that we still don't know or are just beginning to understand. So there's a postdoc that I work with in another lab on campus named Benjamin Smarr, and he's looking at things called ultradian rhythms, which are rhythms that happen over a period that's less than a day. So most of us are familiar with circadian rhythms, which is basically things like your sleep-wake cycle. But these ultradian rhythms are present in activity, they're present in changes in hormone levels, and we know very little about them because we're just now able to measure them in a, in a reliable way. So there's still a lot of basic physiology in humans and other animals that we don't understand that's going to tell us a lot about how a system actually works. And what's the best way to remedy that lack of understanding? The best way is through funding science, I okay, think, and, and support for basic research. I think sometimes the public looks at these basic questions, you know, what is the activity level in a mouse across this period of time? And they say, how is that interesting? How does that help us? But they, they provide this starting point for asking much more complex questions that do have implications for public health as well as environmental consequences of things like climate change. Yeah. And I, I think I've definitely talked about this with someone on the show, but I'm pretty sure you can easily find a list online of really important medications and other things that are really directly applicable to life today that were discovered as part of just a basic research question and then later got applied to a totally different system. So, of course, the question that you start asking isn't always the question you end up answering, but they're all worth asking. For yeah. sure. Awesome. Well, any last words before we wrap up this uh, exciting episode of The Graduates? No, thank you very much for having me on. Of course. Uh, you've been tuned into The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I've been speaking with reproductive endocrinologist Kate Wilsterman from the Department of Integrative Biology. And Kate has been telling us all about her work, understanding the effects of stress on pregnancy and uh, how hormones work in the mouse and, you know, in humans, of course, and all about her really interesting work around the world. It's just great to see that you can have so many different experiences and they're in totally different systems, but they all like lead you towards your interest. And I think that was amazing advice to that people should just have more diversity of experiences and all behind that. I'm looking forward to that opportunity uh, myself, right, in the future. <laughs> Okay, uh, that's it for us. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX.